White Rocket Entertainment. White Rocket Entertainment, podcast number 461. It's the Avengers Assemble podcast from the Jarvis heads of AvengersAssemble.net. Now here's your host, Van Allen Plexico. Hello and welcome to the Avengers Assemble podcast, part of the White Rocket Entertainment Group. Brought to you by White Rocket Entertainment in association with all of our great supporters via Patreon.com. I'm Van Allen Plexico. And I am joined by an occasional co-host who is a longtime Jarvis head from the AvengersAssemble.net website, and that would be David Wright. Welcome back aboard, David. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. And we are gathered here today, the two of us at least, to talk about a seminal moment, not just in the Avengers history, but really, I think, in Marvel Comics history. And I think one of the things I'm interested in discussing with you is I think there's two completely different ways to look at it. We're, we're talking, of course, about the Cree scroll War from Avengers number 89 through 97, back in 1971 and 72. And I think there's two ways to look at this. I think you can look at it as its place in Avengers history and in Marvel history as probably one of the first, if not the first, really big events that takes months and months and months to play out. And, of course, that would be something that pretty soon after Marvel would be doing all over the place. But also, we're going to look at it as just an Avengers story and how it holds up on its own as just a classic Avengers story. And one of the things I really want to kind of investigate about it is... Is it remembered fondly for what it means to Marvel history and Avengers history? How much of the way it's remembered is for what it meant as opposed to the story itself and how good of a story it is? I think that should be a really interesting conversation. So I'm glad to have you aboard to do that. This was your idea. So tell the folks, let's start out by what made you want to dig into this story on your side? Well, first of all, it's hard to believe this, but it's been a year since I was on your show and we were mm. talking about some earlier issues uh, that Roy Thomas wrote for the Avengers. And we decided at the time that I decided, I suggested that it would be good with um, the tie-in to the Captain Marvel movie that we kind of look at Operation Galactic Storm. And then you took it a step further and said, why don't we start with pre-scroll war first? Oh, so this was, was my like, idea? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I'm a... Uh, you know, and that's uh, it was relevant at the time. You know, Captain Marvel's a year old now, but is relevant at the time. But it's also relevant again with the uh, Empire event um, story that Marvel's putting out this year. So, right. I think it's definitely still timely, even for those that are still reading uh, new comics these days. I'm not one of them, but uh, yeah. God bless those that are. Yeah. Um, this is worth digging into for their sake, also. But it is uh, an important storyline and a significant storyline, and. Um, and it's still classic Avengers. It's still Roy Thomas Avengers. So um, I'm I'm excited to dig into it. I'm I was uh, I've enjoyed rereading it this past week and and refreshing myself on all of it. Well, I will state up front for the record that I am not a huge Roy Thomas Avengers fan. I I appreciate Roy. Well, in in terms of being a fan of his writing, I much prefer his Conan the Barbarian. Um, I think he's in his element there, and it really works. Um, 
particularly particularly when John Bashima Bish- is, is doing the art, the two of them together are just classic. I mean, it's just iconic over there. No, no doubt. For um, the, I, yeah, I tread yeah. that ground last time, but I, I know what you mean. Uh, to me, Roy Thomas's plots <laughs> maybe are um, are stronger than his dialogue. Um, all, all of his uh, all of his idiosyncrasies that drove you nuts uh, on those last batch of issues that we read together. Uh, they're still on display here in the Kree Scroll War. Yeah. And I'm sure that that uh, was grating on you if it grated on you last time. But um, after we had that conversation last year, I found uh, an interview that he had done, or I think it was an interview that basically we were we were kind of um, throwing him under the bus, maybe a little unfairly, because um, he this article that I read I'd have I've long since lost track of it, but it um, it suggested that Stan was having him rewrite his dialogue. Um, so he was having to match Stan's bombastic style because his boss was telling him to. So um, I don't know how much of uh, this about the dialogue that drives you nuts is is how Roy would have chosen to do it or if that mm-hmm. was how he was trained to do it. Well, so, remind folks which story that was that we were talking about from last year. Uh, last year we were discussing issues, I believe it was 47 through 60. It basically spanned uh, Black oh, Panther's yeah. time group but we also reached back a little bit further so i could incorporate black knight into it but um that was a it was really a pretty fruitful stretch of issues where roy was introducing a lot of uh, concepts foundational concepts for the series as a whole well that's the thing yeah that's what i was getting at is i i I, in terms of as a writer i appreciate him more on conan but in terms of what he did on the avengers i appreciate him more for the things he introduced i mean to to be fair to roy thomas the the stuff that he throws out in those issues we looked at last year all the way up through this to a certain degree is i mean it's not quite on par with what Stan and Jack were doing in the first few years of the Fantastic 4 but honestly it's like the second level after that i think you know in terms of the foundations of the Marvel universe and the stuff that we still have around the day and everything yes. i mean the, the absolute rock bottom foundation of it is stuff that Stan and Jack did in Fantastic 4 that there's just no question about that Period. Sure. But the stuff that Roy put in the Avengers in in the in the in the in the, in the, the 40s, the 50s, all the way up to 100, whatever, that's like the second level. That's like the sub basement <laughs> above the base above the rock bottom basement. You know, it's you know, like you know, it's it's everything from Ultron and the Grim Reaper and Wonder Man and all that stuff. That's just like it's. I mean, I I don't know that I don't know that um I don't know that Stan and Jack. And any or heck, and anybody else, I don't know that they introduced an, uh, as much stuff in the first couple of years of Avengers as as Roy does in his run. Yeah, I mean, you know, the stuff I would say the the big stuff that Stan and Jack laid down that stuck uh, would be things like Kang and Immortus. Yeah, um, yeah. and also the old order changeth, mm-hmm. but um, those are major. They're huge. Sure, I, I, Wonder Man, you know, but um, at the same time. It's a short list. I mean, compared to what Roy did, so um, I, I, I think you're right. I mean, I, I, I totally—that's exactly how I feel about Roy Thomas's run on the Avengers. Is he was basically building the mansion. He was doing the brickwork um, that just allowed everything else to come after that. So the Kree Scroll War. Hmm? I was going to say the Kree Scroll War is absolutely a part of that. That what he was doing. That there's some there's some stuff he does with this story that have long range implications for the Marvel Universe and just. Marvel Comics. We could get into all that. 
Yeah, because the Kree and the Skrull pop up in a lot more places than just Avengers. It's not like... Um, they're not as proprietary to the Avengers in any way as like the Shi'ar are to the X-Men. You know, in other words, you, you barely ever see the Shi'ar anywhere except in the X-Men comics, at least back in the day. Um, right. Where, and, and, and a lot of the stuff that you see in the Fantastic Four, you only see, you know, like the negative zone is, is, is 95%. Other than Captain Marvel, it's 95% in Fantastic Four. It's not like the Avengers go explore the negative zone every other issue. You know what I mean? So a lot of that stuff that was so huge in Fantastic Four is, is to some degree limited to the Fantastic Four. You know, and whereas a lot of this stuff is all across the entire Marvel universe, and you even see it, you even see it in the um, in the MCU and the Guardians of the Galaxy, particularly. You know, with so, you know, with stuff like Ronan and and the the Supreme yep. Intelligence and all that. So, um, yep, that's right. So, um, so what okay. do you think? Let's 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 dig into it. Do you want to do high level thoughts? Or you just want to go issue by issue. How do you want to do it? Well, let's do a little. Uh, uh, let's let's kick off with kind of like overview and and you know how what's how is this story remembered? I mean, I, I alluded to it a little bit, but let's kind of lay out what does this storyline mean to Marvel and comics history because people may not fully appreciate that and okay. why. Well, the uh, it's huge. I mean, it, it's it's a it's an early milestone and a landmark story for Marvel Comics, and and it's one of the great storylines that's always referred to from Avengers history. And I'd say it's a career highlight for Roy Thomas. Um, the reasons why are, I think, probably in line with what you were suggesting earlier, which is more about um, not so much the content of the issues themselves, but just what the whole approach represents for how Marvel. You know, would go about doing business. Um, what I mean is, at a, here we are, 1971, at a time when the direct market basically didn't exist. It was all newsstand, mm -hmm. and he was bold enough to write a nine-issue story, which was unheard of. It was literally unheard of. No one did that. It didn't make sense, really, in the newsstand-heavy uh, environment that they were in, because there was the chances that one person, so the conventional wisdom went at the time. That one person was getting all nine of these and and making sense of the end of the story because they had all the ones before it. No one depended on that kind of approach. It was very much a month to month kind of mindset. And so this was, I would say, revolutionary at the time. There had been multi-issue stories in Marvel uh, from Marvel. At, we're ten years in from Fantastic Four number one. It had happened, but a nine-issue story had never been done. Um, and it also, and we'll get into the details of it, but um, it also draws, this is classic Roy Thomas, the, the fan writer, it draws on a lot of trivia minutia from different characters in different series and brings them into play. And so in that sense, because you're seeing Fantastic Four and Inhumans and, and, and even uh, referencing some Thor and stuff like that, it's it's about as close as you can get to like a company-wide, I don't want to say a company-wide crossover, but like, like almost a maxi series that you might see mm -hmm. in the 80s that's kind of using the entire Marvel Universe or certainly a broader canvas than just the Avengers series to tell the story. So I think mm -hmm. I, I think it kind of it kind of paved the way. It was a pioneer as far as that sort of thing goes. Well, let's let's think think about it like this way, like how it builds and builds. Right? I'm I'm going to give it credit where credit's due. I have a lot negative to say about it, but I've got positive too. The way that it builds, I mean, think about this. It starts out as basically a version of Cap's kooky quartet, right? You've got, um, you've got, the, you've got Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver, 
You have Hawkeye, although he's in the Goliath identity for this entire story, which is kind of disappointing because he's Hawkeye. You don't want to see him just being big. That's Pym's job. But anyway, you got the you got the three of them, but instead of Captain America, you have the Vision. So it's like the Vision's kooky quartet. That's how you that, that's how you kind of start this story off. Just them, and then Marvel shows up. So you got Captain Marvel joined in, and then over the course of the story, you add Rick Jones. You add the Kree and the Scrolls. You got the Super Scroll. You add the Fantastic Four, the Inhumans. I mean, it just and oh, and of course, at about halfway through, you get Thor, Iron Man, and Captain America coming back too, joining in to make an even bigger and more classic, iconic Avengers team. Um, nice. And then Pym shows up briefly too and does a does a little has an issue to do something cool. So I mean, it it's like it starts so small, just like this ordinary kooky quartet type story, and it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger as it goes along. Okay, so that reminds me of something. So think about this: this is before the internet, is before um, trade press. Basically, I guess there were some some fanzines that existed, but mm-hmm. this was a this was at a time when nobody knew the solicitations, nobody knew what was coming next. That's right. You would just walk down to the corner store, oh, there's a new Avengers, grab it, I wonder what's going to happen. And you had you went into every issue completely cold, not knowing what, what you're in for. So when you buy issue 89 off the stands, you have no idea that you're at the beginning of a nine-issue run. Exactly. When you, right. buy ni- when you buy 91, you have no idea how long <laughs> this is going to go or what's next. Right. This is so- exactly like Korvac. The Korvac saga years later was the same way. And that's one of the things I appreciated about it was it was a complete mystery, always a surprise. You you have no idea. Is it going to go on a year, two years, just one more issue? You have no idea. I love that about it. Yeah. So because it kept continuing, which was new, mm-hmm. and you had no idea how long it was going to last. And like you said, it started with a small cast and kept building out and building out. And the implications kept getting bigger. You know, we're talking about yeah. intergalactic war. Yeah. Um I mean, the anticipation, you know, month to month just had to be, you know, off the charts. In fact, I would say that one of the things about it, and I've got a variety of things that we'll get to. I don't have a set of notes here. I'm just kind of going on my reactions from having read it for the second time. I read it years ago, and then I read it again. I have the uh, the Comixology Trade Collection digital um, with a different cover than what Wikipedia shows. Um, actually, the... Um, the Comixology cover is really cool. It's got the scene from later in one of the comics where Captain America is standing on the rock with the Vision and Thor and Goliath and Iron Man sort of standing behind him and a little lower, and he's raising his fist at the heavens. That's And it's got the supreme intelligence in the background. That's a pretty – it's almost like a Star Wars-looking cover, and I really like that one. The one that's on the trade paperback they first published in 2000 has the Vision saying, Three Cows Shot Me Down, uh, about which hopefully I'll, I'll have more to say later. But – um. But the thing, the thing that kind of disappoints me about it is that you know Roy Thomas has said he did not have a grand plot breakdown for this. He kind of made it up as he went along, and was just doing it issue by issue, just seeing where it took him. And so there was no big plan, and it shows in a couple of ways that we can get into as we go along. But also in the in that you never really have a Cree Scroll War in this Cree Scroll War. I mean that's to me one of the most disappointing things about it is that you never actually get much of a real Cree Scroll there's there's like there's barely any scenes in the entire nine issues where the Cree and the Scrolls are fighting each other. I mean I um, I kind of tune in wanting to see I mean how much would you have paid to get an issue where you have a big scene with 
the Super Scroll and Ronan bashing each other's brains in while armies of Kree and Scroll are blasting away each other in the background. How You don't get anything like that in this story. It's all very much in the background. Yeah, when, when you hear the title, The Kree Scroll War, yeah. and, you hear, and you hear about its like high reputation, you, you're ready to see that kind of stuff. And yeah. uh, no doubt. So I would say this. I, it's been a long time since I've read The Kree Scroll War. It's probably been 25 years. And and I think you're absolutely right. And I'll say this: I'm, I think I probably have a general, overall, more positive reaction to this than you do. But I'm not saying it's 100 percent either, because I, I definitely um, remember this story more for its reputation than for the actual contents. Exactly. And when when I read it this time, um, I kept wondering where the Cree Scroll War was. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, it uh, it is. Almost entirely from an earthbound perspective, we hear about a war and yeah. we see somehow how it, it's affecting Earth and Earth becomes important to them. But it's not a whole lot of uh, no, not a whole lot of outer space action. Mm. That's definitely for sure. And I knew when I was reading, I was like, that's not that's not going to entertain fan very much. You know, just- <laughs> I know I so bad want to go back and rewrite this thing. I mean, again, I think the ideas are great. I think their ideas are solid in it and there's a lot of good that can be done with it. But Roy was just kind of busting it out while he was probably writing five other, you know, books a month or whatever. And, and, I, and it's, you know, it's certainly for, for its time was huge, but we're reading it in 2020, you know, now this time, and it's not it's not fair at all how we're treating it, except that it opened the door for all these other things that we can now compare it to, and you know I mean it's <laughs> it's it's like if you know it's like the original King Kong was a great movie back in the 30s or whatever, but you can't compare it to other than in story you know to 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 the CGI effects and and you know like Jurassic Park and whatever even from from there you know it's just not gonna you know, in terms of how it looks and everything. And it's the same way here is that Roy was just inventing the idea of doing a story like this. And so it's an, it's very much an Avengers story, not a giant Marvel Universe crossover story. Like you said, and you made, you made a good point there, that it's not a company-wide crossover the way we think of them today. It's an Avengers story where those other people and aliens just kind of show up for an issue or two and do their thing and leave, you know. And so, you know, imagine if this story was written in the last 20 years. It would have been 40 issues long, including all the tie-ins, and it would have all been labeled. The the dress on the cover would be Cree Scroll War Part 37 of 50, you know, or whatever. And it, I, I don't... I don't I, I don't think that would have been better. I'm not saying that. I don't think that would have been better. I think it, it would. It, it's just that that's what we're comparing it to is all the inclusive stuff that would have been thrown in that's not in this. And so in some ways this is refreshing and in some ways it's disappointing to me. Well, it's definitely, you have to give it credit for being a new way of telling a Marvel story yeah. for its time. Um, and also, you know, I, I really... I had, after I finished rereading it this time, I found some quotes from Roy Thomas where he, he said that he didn't have that master plan that you're talking about. Um, but I didn't know that when I started my reread this time, and, it, and I still got that sense. Like, it starts mm-hmm. out on such a small scale, I'm like, so this is the first issue of the Kree-Scroll War? Yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, I, but I also kind of like the idea if he was making it up month to month and wondering where it was going to take him. Um, it does kind of explain maybe how the whole thing flows, but uh, but 
then at the same time, it seems to wrap up really quickly in the final issue. And I guess maybe, yeah. stand, okay, Roy, that's enough. We can't keep this going on forever. Well, um, I kept I thinking, see, see, I think you'll agree with me. When you get up to issue like 96 and this thing is still going wide open, don't you start think the way, again, the way we think today, maybe more than back then, but don't you start thinking, oh man, I know where this is going. Issue 100 is going to be like the Cree. It's going to be like a double-sized giant Cree scroll free-for-all with, you know, Ronan on one side and the, the super scroll. And there's going to be armies and spaceships and Thor's going to be. That's what I was thinking. You get to 97 and it just kind of goes. Yeah, you're right. And, and I'm right, okay, I, built up some big war in 100. Man, that'd probably be, that'd be just <sighs> right there on the top shelf. Oh, I, man. I guess, I mean, he only, Roy only went. I think he got to 103 and then became the editor of the line. Yeah. And he did like two more issues and then he had to give up the book. But I guess he had an idea for issue 100 that it was the three point, the three part uh, Olympian story. Right. So I guess he realized, oh no, I'm at 97. I, I have to stop. <laughs> I, gotta, I don't know. <laughs> but uh, it did. I mean, we can get to it if we're, if we're stepping through the issues, but yeah. it did seem to come to a pretty, pretty quick conclusion. And we never did get that like galactic scale. Mm two armadas crashing into each other, spaceships and lasers everywhere. That war, that intergalactic war that the title promises, you never you never really get to see it on on the page. Yeah, I'm trying to I was trying to think of an analogy. It's like if you rented a three hour World War II blockbuster movie and they spend the entire story at Pearl Harbor kind of dealing with that and you hear that the Germans are doing something and you hear the Japanese are doing something else and maybe at one point they take a boat out into the Pacific for a little while and they fight a couple of Japanese on an island and that's it. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, where's the, where's the war, man? <laughs> so, but I don't we're not here to crap on it. I mean, we both have good and bad things I think to say about it. So, you want to kind of walk through it a little bit and we can continue this as we go along. Sure. I don't know if we need to do a detailed thing of every issue, but right. um, I, I think I can wrap up the first three issues fairly quickly. Um, it starts out in the middle. It starts out in the middle of the action where Marvel is being chased by somebody, being chased by the Avengers, and he gets wiped mm-hmm. out, and, and they take him into custody. And I think, um, and it turns out they're in Florida, and they're getting ready to hook him up because they they've oh. got to drain radiation off of him before the planet blows. Oh, oh, and we get an Annihilus cameo. I want to mention we do get an Annihilus cameo here, which is kind of cool because it's always true. neat neat to see him. Yeah, they they do a little back, they do a quick little flashback to show how they got to this situation. And what it was is, um, so here we are, Marvel and Rick Jones. They're doing what? They're they're still swapping places with their negabands, and only one person can be in the world at this at one time the other one has to hang out in the negative zone right which oh, i think roy thomas invented that for captain marvel's series and it was yeah kind of to you know billy batson and exactly. the other captain marvel that's exactly uh, yes and but then it creates the problem of the person in the negative zone doesn't want to be there no so you, <laughs> so you get marvel angst you know that way i guess but um they're basically they have because Marvel has watched Reed Richards in action in the negative zone, he's figured out a gateway to get out of the negative zone. So he uh, influences Rick, or you know, convinces Rick to go up to Baxter Building, and they basically break into the Baxter Building, switch places, break into the Baxter Building, and he's opening this negative zone gate to bring Rick back through, so they can both be in the world at the same time. They can get away from this curse. Well, the, the Fantastic Four are out of town. Vision's on monitor duty. You know. They, the Avengers take off and go figure out what's going on at the Baxter building. And there's this guy, Marvel, they've never met before. There's Rick Jones. And oh my goodness, here, who, guess who's coming through the door from the negative zone? 
Good old is, bug face. Is a, a, a Nihilus. Thank you. I, my brain went blank. So <laughs> I love him. They, they fight him. They send him back. And um, they turn around and marvel has gone. He's stolen a Quinjet. Yeah. Can, <laughs> can I just say here that, you know, I Marvel is my second all-time favorite comics character. I love Marvel. And so it's really neat. I mean, if nothing else, if nothing else, this story gives you the first time that the Avengers encounter him, really. And that's cool to me. Now, it's the old Marvel with the white hair and a whole bunch of points on his gold star rather than just eight, you know, and he doesn't have the photon blast yet. I mean, right. I I have a lot harder time with Marvel back then because I like the blonde headed Marvel after Starlin got a hold of him. And then later on, he gets the photon blast with his negative bands and everything. And he's not really connected to Rick Jones anymore. That's the Marvel I really enjoy. But it's just at least good to see kind of how they got together because I always think of him as like if there's one honorary Avenger that never actually joined the team but that is considered kind of like he almost did, it would be Marvel, right? Absolutely. So the uh, the thing is though, right away, I'll just say this here is right away with the beginning of this issue that Roy is reaching out from beyond the scope of the Avenger series itself and going into other corners of the Marvel universe. Yeah. So he's in the whole story of Captain Marvel switching places with Rick Jones, and we're gonna, you know, very soon here, the next couple of pages, we see him down at the Cape. We see Carol Danvers walk in with a cameo, yeah. her favorites ever in Avengers. You know, so we get the whole Captain Marvel stuff from his series. So <laughs> we're already reaching beyond this book to kind of br- to inform this story. So. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So. I love that. I love that Carol shows up for the first time in the Avengers, and she's got paperwork for people to fill out. I'm like, come on, is that? You know, this is one of the greatest characters in Marvel history. She's got a billion dollar movie, you know, and the first time we see her in the Avengers, she's brought paperwork to fill out. Like, oh man. So, are you still in '89? Are we to '90 yet? Yeah, well, so I'm kind of throwing them all together. So, '89. Okay. Uh, so, because um, I got a couple of things to say about '90 specifically. So, go ahead. Okay, well, it's just that... Uh, let me find my notes here. So he's... All that negative zone radiation is what's saturating Marvell, and they have to get it off of him, and it's not working. And so Vision sits down and says, use my solar stone, whatever, and he's helping to save Marvell's life. And it works, but they're both kind of incapacitated. They're out. But here's... So meanwhile, if you're tracking the plot of the war that's going on off, you know, outside of our island, like off stage somewhere, yeah. um, Ronan the Accuser has successfully usurped yes. the Supremes and has taken over rulership of the Kree galaxy. Well, as any reader of the Captain Marvel series would know at this point, and by the way, I think his his series had ended like a year before this story. It so came and is, went. Yeah, it, it kind of came and went, and it was in one of its hiatuses at this point. It'll come back a couple more times, yeah. Well, a- any fan of that series would know that Ronan really does not like Marvel. So. No. The very first thing he did after taking over the Kree galaxy way over there mm-hmm. is reactivate the sentry robot that's at Cape Canaveral. Yes. That's- <laughs> and attack. And, um, and, and so that's, that's, the, uh, that's the cliffhanger going into 90. So they have the fight with the sentry, and they're sitting there fighting. And um, eventually, I'm not trying to go in order through this, through this issue, but um, this, the end of the, that part of it is Ronan gets oh, – hold on. I don't want to say that. I'm getting too far ahead. But yes, after the fight with the Sentry, and Sentry takes off with Marvel, 
then Carol Danvers is like, the, the Avengers are getting ready to leave and go back to the mansion because they don't know what else to do. And, and Carol totally stops them and says, no, I got some paperwork. I really need to get your report. <laughs> awesome. Which, well, you know, it's like, and, and, and she was, I'm sure, I'm, I'm guessing here, not looking it up, a Roy Thomas invention from the Captain Marvel series. And he wanted to work in the supporting cast. And that's all she was at this point. She was security. It, she was several away from getting any powers. Yeah, she was security chief at Cape Canaveral. I just the, the thing about the thing about ninety that I just wanted to mention was that this is the issue that starts out with the sen- it's Judgment Day. It starts out um, with the Sentry coming in to fight the Avengers, and he's like he's formidable. And I just that really kind of surprised me. I guess that he the the, the Kree Sentry are usually cannon fodder pretty much. And so it intrigued me that in this one issue, he's pretty much the main villain the whole way through this issue. I mean, Ronan shows up at the very end, more or less. But this entire issue is the Avengers fight, more or less the Avengers fighting uh, a sentry. And he's kicking their butts a lot of the time. So (laughs) I just was very surprised by that. And also what you get is you get a couple of pages of Rick Jones giving us an info dump on the Cree. So we get... We get Cree history, which references some issues of Thor. Mm-hmm. Um, we hear about the Inhumans and how they're a result of Cree manipulation. And we get some Captain Marvel history and how he decided to reject the ways of his people. And you see him in his white and white and green. And then it, and it kind of catches up to kind of catches the reader up on who this Marvel guy is. So we get everything, a little little info pack there, everything about the Cree. So that becomes important. You got to lay down that work for later in the story. But uh, after they get through with their paperwork and, and Miss Danvers <laughs> is happy, they, uh, they go back to the mansion because what else can they do? They're, they're, all their Avengers are safe. Vision's back again. Uh, Marvel's gone, but where did he go? How do you track him? Who knows? Who was that guy? They've never met him before. They get back to the mansion and there's a recording left by Goliath, which is Clint Barton that he has gone off to Alaska to find Hank and Jan because Jan called asking for help. He says, y'all come join me. And so they decide to go do that. But when, when, uh, Clint, when Clint gets up there and he's talking to Jan, she says he's been lost in this jungle and he has to go find him. Uh, what's happened is, believe it or not, this random, what seems to be a brand new adventure after going down to Cape Canaveral where they're just responding to a, a, a monitor duty and taking off for Alaska, it turns out to be directly related to what was happening in Cape Canaveral. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ronan's already there with the Sentry, and they have Captain Marvel. It's all up there in the Arctic Circle, where they have created a tropical little jungle. Yeah. And the the Cree plot here is to use a, uh, a de evolution ray or something like that. Yeah, something that's going to de evolve the people and the creatures of Earth so that it can. Well, he gives a couple different reasons over the course of the issues. One is uh, that. Even though the Cree can beat the Earthlings in battle, it's they're taking a little too long to do it, and that's proof that the Earthlings will eventually be their superiors in the ways of the universe. Mm-hmm. So he wants to knock the Earth back a peg, but he, also apparently it's going to make it easier for the Cree to uh, station some troops there or, or or occupy it or something like that. And, and um, what and, and it, if, uh, with Clint is under the mind control of the Sentry, so he's side to side with the Sentry fighting the Avengers, and Hank Pym who as yellow jacket has de-evolved into a caveman. So you have, you have caveman yellow jacket <laughs> coming after uh, Jan at the end of this issue. Weren't, weren't you expecting Kazar and Zabu to come out of the bushes at some point? <laughs> I, I kept feeling like this was the hidden land or whatever, you know? 
Yeah. Um, so I had a couple of notes about, well, just 89 and 90. I kind of went over them both real quick. Um, so the whole body swapping thing with Marvel and Rick, that's important. And um, it seems to be solved here. Like they mm-hmm. solve it by yep. bringing Rick through the negative zone portal in, in issue 89. That's no longer a thing. Well, you know, I think we know from our later 70s reading of Marvel that, you know, that doesn't, you know, that doesn't match up. They're still doing the body swapping thing. So that's something to watch out for over the course of the Kree-Skrull War is what happens with that. Mm-hmm. But also, also, I want to point this out. This is not, you know, it's not necessarily pleasant, but uh, Yellow Jacket, Hank Pym, uh, hits Jam. Um, you know, <laughs> he's most famous for the domestic violence episode in issue 213 or whatever it was. Yeah. And everybody says that was so out of character. It happens again. It happens right here. And he basically just says, I have no time to explain. This is the way it's got to be. And he just cold cocks her. I could, ex- her I could explain the situation to you, woman. Or I could just knock you out. I guess I'll go with the latter. Yeah. That's, wow. It's like a roundhouse backhand. That's such, a late, that's such a 60s thing here in 1971. Yeah. That's such a, well, a Sean Connery Bond thing, you know. Yeah. That's that's how it reads maybe the first time, but when you have the context of what comes later with Hank, it's just like, ooh, ow. it's not good. Yeah, no. I mean, again, this happened with me when we were reading last year's batch of Roy Thomas issue, <laughs> and that's all the stuff that happened with Hank, um, with with his court martial and all the stuff where he he get the fall of Hank Pym. That was not just out of the blue. I think that was very well established with character's history, and this this moment, this one panel here in issue ninety is very much a part of, the, of making that case. But um, I just found it interesting. You know, it's not, it's not awesome, but it's, um, you know, it does, it does resonate, I think, with the future history of the book. Yeah, no, absolutely. There's also, I'm not sure if it's this issue or later ones or what, but there's at least one whole issue of this storyline where the vision, his head is yellow. Did you notice that, or is it just in the version I have digitally? Yeah, I, yeah the colorist, I have this, uh, I have the trade paperback of vision coming through the door saying three cows shot me down and there is an issue where his head is yellow and then there's a there's a late issue where ronan has pink skin yes that's yes i noticed that too what why couldn't they have fixed that in the trade collections that just doesn't make sense but uh yeah so so 89 90 gets a lot of get a lot of century the century's still around all the way through 91 in fact when they're fighting up in the up in the up in the uh, the tropical jungle in the in the Arctic, and the th- interesting thing to me in 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 ninety one is it ends with a finis right f i n i s like this is the end of the story. So you would certainly have been one one would certainly have been forgiven for thinking this was a three part story that ended with just some dangling subplots for later, and it's over because it says basically the end there. So uh, and Quicksilver and Rick Jones come in and they try to save Wanda and Vision. They get separated from them. They they're unsuccessful, and they are actually Wanda and Vision are now captured by Ronan, the Accuser, and they're in mm-hmm. his custody. And right here, during their joint imprisonment, is the beginning of the Wanda and Vision romance. Yes, it starts right here, which I did not remember it being a Roy Thomas thing. I guess I thought it came from Steve Englehart, but. I mean, Wanda and Vision were a couple forever, and they're still associated together. Mm-hmm. And we still have it in the MCU. That's right. And so here's there's a Roy Thomas echo in the MCU. Uh, it starts right here. This is the beginning where they don't ever actually quite say it, but they both kind of want to, and they always get interrupted. It's that kind of thing. Yeah. But I was surprised to read that. I had forgotten that it happens this early in the series. But you're. But to your point, you're right. By the time 91 is over, 
it's been a three issue story. The bad guys are all gone and the good guys are all together and safe. And you've got the whole cast, including Marvell and Hank and Jan. They're all kind of gathered together. It's like for the final shot, looking up in the stars. And that's the end of the story. Now, for a reader in 1971, you've got no reason to think it's ever going to get any bigger than that. Yeah. And it, it was not called the Kree-Scroll War at the time. That, that all came later. Right. Um, and 92, uh, on the surface, now there's a lot. There, 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 it, 92 has got a lot of, uh, it's packing a lot of surprises, none of which pay off in issue 92. But there's some stuff going on in 92 that you don't necessarily see on the surface on first read. But on the surface, there's no Cree or scroll activity in issue 92. You've got it's there. It starts off pleasantly enough. They're hanging around the mansion. I think I think Vision is in a sweater playing chess. Well, great and, cover, classic cover. And uh, right. And then the, the the other scientists that were up in the Arctic Circle have blabbed about <laughs> what happened with the Cree plot to de-evolve the Earth. Those idiots. And, where the Avengers had tried to keep it secret. Well, this uh, this makes a certain politician, and he's worth mentioning his name because he's an important enough character to the story. H. Warren Craddock mm-hmm. is a politician who gets all upset, and he starts the Alien Activities Commission, and he is he's rallying public sentiment against the Avengers on this anti-alien uh, rhetoric. And so, in the and there's to the point where you've got picket signs outside the mansion, and they're all mad at the Avengers, and they're looking out the window, and here comes Carol Danvers in a helicopter, <laughs> and she crashes it. And she crashes, bless her heart. Which, you know, you know, you would think maybe she'd be more competent than that, but hold on, there's payoff later, but not in this issue. All you see is Carol crash the chopper on the mansion. Um, well, I, she almost crashes it. I think. Marvel and Vision able to stop it from being destroyed. They save it enough, but it's still a hard landing. But um, and then there's a court case. There's a court hearing that Craddock calls. It's very public, televised hearing, and they're in front of. It's almost like a Senate subcommittee type setting, and they're in the middle of this hearing. And Rick does something strange. Rick has a vision of of um, oh, I, before I get to the hearing, I should say that Carol convinces Marvel that he should come with her to a farm that some friends of her have, mm-hmm. you know, farm that belongs to friends of hers that he should go there and lay low and get out of the public eye. And the Avengers agree he should go. So he's off with, to be with Carol and her friends at this farm upstate. Mm-hmm. Well, Rick is at the courthouse later and randomly has this vision of Marvell in trouble at the farm. And he just bolts out, which seems really weird to everybody. And nobody knows mm-hmm. why there is a payoff at the end of this, of these issues that we're talking about today, but it seems strange at the time. They adjourn the meeting. All right, the Avengers go back to the mansion, and the protesters have broken into the mansion and destroyed it all. Unbelievable. And, and left Jarv- Jarvis in a nervous wreck. Mm-hmm. And then something really ha- weird happened with me having lost familiarity with happens and the rest of these issues. Totally random, very rushed, last couple of panels of the issue. Captain America, Iron Man, and Thor walk in and say, <laughs> I don't like what y'all have done. We're permanently disbanding the Avengers, and that's it. Bye. Bye. <laughs> That's great. I love it. Yeah. The cover, right? That great cover. It happens in the last six panels, basically, or seven, or they cram right. This last page has one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten panels on it. This is one of those panels where if I wrote this as a script for one of my artists, they would just shoot me. But yeah, you got ten panels of things happening and tons of dialogue, which is another and, and let me 
you know, again, I want to occasionally interject things as I think of them, sort of the meta stuff, David. Um, one of the problems that I have with, with, I think, with this story and with Roy Thomas overall is that there are superheroes in this story that are the Avengers and their friends and allies, okay, and supporting characters. And they say superhero things to each other that advance the plot. But I hardly ever feel like they're actual living beings. They never, there's no, I mean, again, I know it's 1971, 72, but, you know, you think about how Shooter would later write them, or Englehart would later write them even, or Stern, or or Busick. I mean, they were human beings who had these powers, but they had relationships. And everything is just so on the surface here, you know? There's just, it's all exclamations and and declaiming and proclaiming and all. And I just, I kept reading these issues hoping to find some genuine human emotion and interaction beyond the surface. And there just really isn't any. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. I think that's a Roy Thomas. It's certainly a Roy Thomas uh, trademark for his run on the Avengers at the very least. Yeah. Um, There's... No naturalistic conversation where you feel any kind of human connection between them. I, I know what you're saying. Yeah, that's definitely fair. Yeah. Um, it's, it's too bad. I mean, because that's what I used to turn to Marvel for, because I came along, you know, in the reading Marvel in 77, 78. And by that time, I always tried to explain to people that Marvel's relationships and, and dialogue and everything was more sophisticated, certainly, than you got on most television at that time. And people didn't believe me, but it was true. And if, But you just go back just a few years. This is why I'm just not a big fan of a lot of comics from before I started reading them. And it, it, as with everything, right, you're, you're often a fan of, of what you first encountered, and it kind of set that standard in your mind. But I just feel like a lot of the Marvel comics from even a couple of years before I started reading them are just not nearly as much fun to read because they just were not as sophisticated. Now, I guess somebody that started reading in the last 10 or 15 years feels like the stuff that you and I grew up reading is not sophisticated enough. And I could see that because certainly movies, you know, I mean, uh, comics, you know, in the last few years are much more like movies and they're much more about, they've gone completely that other direction, right? There's not enough heroic action for you and me, I don't think, anymore. They've gone completely to just being, right. being pictures of a movie. Right. And long conversations, you know, long conversations, page after page of conversations. But there's a medium, there's a happy medium in there somewhere, I feel like, and this is too far in the other direction from that. This is the polar opposite from how, from how comics right. are today. Yeah, no doubt. But uh, as, we, as we get ready to turn the page to issue 93, uh, we, we absolutely need to stop and talk about how these first four issues, 89 through 92, mm-hmm. they were drawn by Sal Buscema. Right. And Sal... Uh, you know, um, he's a good storyteller. He's a solid craftsman. Um, he's, you know, he's, he has his fans and he's had a long career, but you know, he's not one of my favorite. I think I said much the same thing about George Tuska last time. It's not that he's a bad artist to me. He's just not very exciting. And, um, yeah, it's 93. You know who we get? We get Neil Adams. We do. It's by Tom Palmer. My goodness, the quantum leap in the artwork where you have Sal Buscema and, and well, Sal inked himself on 90 and 91, George Russo's inking 92. So you get Sal and Russo's compared to Neil Adams and Tom Palmer. There's no comparison. It's like golden age to modern age. It's, 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 I, the artwork 
Neil Adams only ever did four issues of the Avengers, and they're right here inside the Kree Scroll War. And it, this immediately looks like we've jumped 30, 40 years ahead in times in terms of quality of comic book illustration. It's a, it is a, it's just a watershed. It's a game changer. How, how I've never seen artwork improve so much in one step from one issue to the next. <laughs> it's me away. It still blows me away today. Uh, when it, whenever we're naming great Avenger artists, you know, usually George Perez and John Buscema are at the top of that list because not only how awesome they are, but how much time they put into the Avengers. And they both had two different distinct runs each with the Avengers. So they kind of are associated with Neil Adams is not really associated with the Avengers and he only did four issues, but my goodness, he belongs in the conversation. What he does 1971, Neil Adams. I don't think you get any better than that. Um, I'm just blown away by him. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I, I don't focus as much on the art and I do like Sal. I think Sal is very, he's workmanlike and, and not as exciting, like you said, but, but, um, but I don't think there's anything wrong with him, but yeah, getting Neil Adams in, it is kind of a jarring transition from one to the other. Unfortunately, this, when, when Neil Adams comes in, this is also when you get the yellow headed vision, which is weird because on the first time you see him, his head is green, like it's supposed to be. And then after that, the entire issue, it's yellow. And I just never have figured that out. But yeah, that's, um, it, he really, his perspectives, the angles, the, the depth of the characters' faces and everything is really quite remarkable there. And we have to pause for just a moment here to thank our great patrons who keep this show and others at the White Rocket Entertainment Network on the air every day, every week, every month of the year that we produce our shows. Those great patrons, for as little as a dollar a month, keep our shows going, and you can join their ranks. Just go to www.plexico.net, P-L-E-X-I-C-O.net, www.plexico.net, or just go to patreon.com and search Plexico, and it's not hard to find. For as little as a dollar a month, you can join their ranks. We have to thank our anonymous donors, plus Matthew Flowers, Carl Von Drunker, Samuel Salvatore, and Christopher Burleson at the front line of defending Earth from the supervillains, along with Phil Amthor, Ben Spooner, Bart Lindsay, Bradley Blackman, William Glenn Matthews, Gary Grant, Brian Gray, Willie Carden, Tom Anderson, Susan Trawick, Logan Chilton, Stephen Thompson, Chris Usher, Steve Trawick, Richard Stevens, William Morgan, W.D.E. Ritchie, Winston Body, Clinton Stewart, Christopher Stewart, Mickey B, Phil Davis, Joshua Corbett, John Otsuki, Preston Settle, Daniel Odom, A.U. Falling Up, Alchemist Kevin Smith, Clarence Alford, Will Summerford, David Hegler, Johnny Caldwell, Theodore Gary, Reynolds Wolf, Joel Beckham, Valiant Hermes, Jacob and Robin Fleming, Clay Henson, Ann Kangian, Catherine England, George Gaston, John McCune, David Evers, Timothy, Steve Harlan, Dan Thompson, Wes Atkinson, Rich Reimer, and then we have Blake Heron, Hugh Anderson, Stephen Houston, Cato the Barner, Danny Flack, Papa Todd, Russell Milling, Kevin Kenoy, Don Ziederman, Ross, Lane Middleton, Shannon Butson, Randall Walker, Shane Bailey, Chris Thrash, Tony Perry, Alex Nguyen, Josh Teal, David Simpson, Earl Ricks, Mike Finley, and C.T. Wayne. And finally, Jeremy Minton, Wardam Wade, Spanky, J.W. Rice, Jason Albrick, Mick Vigicana, Russell Souther, Paul Bankson, Joseph Iliff, Justin Bean, Kevin Mahan, Stephen Wyatt, Trevor Johnson, Auburn Elvis, Robert Drain, Brandon Smith, Royce Alvarez, Thomas Brinson, David Smiley, Matthew Wagstaff, Donnie Reynolds, Wade Carson, Ivor Evans, John Zavachin, Michael Morton, Lawrence K. 
Kane, Darren Pyle, Chris Camo, Ben Amos, Ruth and Darren Sutherland, Patrick Williams, Rob Morgan, Stephen Schuster, James Taylor, John Stubbs, Kenneth Brent Rains, Nicholas Craig, Joseph A. Miller, Mark Squire, Chris Brent Rumble, and our one-time and anonymous donors. We thank you all. Join their ranks. Go to www.plexico.net or patreon.com. So I've got I've got some more real world stuff about issue ninety three that I need to get into that I think is pretty interesting. Um, as I was reading it, uh, um, it it seemed to go on forever, which I was not complaining. It was it was Neil Adams, but I was like, how long is this story? And I started counting the pages on it. I was like, whoa, wait, what? Well, I looked it up. Um, 89, 90, 91, 92, and even going back at least a year prior to that, all the issues were 19 pages long. Mm-hmm. 93 has 34 or 36 story pages. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 34 30. at the bottom of the last page here I'm looking at right now. Okay, well, so I looked a little bit closely, and uh, so here's something to look at. Uh, 92 was the last issue to be cover priced at 15 cents, and it's dated for September of 1971. There is no October issue oh, for the event. Okay. We put out an issues in seventy one. Ninety three is cover dated for November and it's twenty five cents. Yep. It went from it says to twenty five cents, but you're getting thirty four pages. And then I looked ahead, issue ninety four, it's down to twenty cents where it stayed and um and the page count has dropped again. It's more than nineteen. I don't have the page count in front of me, but it was something like 22 or 23 pages. I thought that was weird. I was like, what happened here? Did they bring in Neil? He was immediately slow and behind schedule. They just had to skip October and just like give him some more pages in in uh, in November and try to catch up. Because, you know, he was only there four issues. One of them, he had help from John Buscema. Maybe he just couldn't keep up with the schedule. So I reached out and I asked our friend, Kurt Busick, if he knew, if he had any insight on what may have happened. Okay. With this like story here, we get one, we skip a month, then we have a double, basically a double size issue at a big price, and yep. then it goes back down again. What happened? Well, what he did is he sent me a link to a book excerpt, to a book that I didn't know existed, and I'm going to have to buy it. It's on Amazon. It's called Slugfest, the epic story of the 50-year war between Marvel and DC. Dude, called- dude I just yeah. got that on Audible last week. I haven't listened to it yet. And based on this excerpt, I think you're going to love it, and I'm going to have to get it. But the, the part he sent me, uh, it was a, a blog somewhere had published this part, and it basically explains it like this. Marvel and DC at this time in summer of 71 were using the same printer uh, to do their books. And the printer informed them that they're going to they're gonna have to, it's going to cost them more. It's gonna, and so the way the economics worked out, they realized, well, they were, they were going to have to go up on their cover price. They were just going to. But DC had this idea of, and somehow this worked, the, the math worked out between the cost of printing and everything else, that if they give extra story pages and just go up even higher than they have to, and so they jump from 15 to 25 cents, but give them some extra pages, then that works out better and the readers get a value. Well, um, it's widely believed. They didn't state it definitively, but they talk about how it's generally kind of agreed that uh, DC and Marvel kind of colluded on the idea that they would raise their page count and their prices together. So this was, um, help me out, Martin uh, Goodman. Martin Goodman um, decided that Marvel would Marvel would do this. So in basically in agreement with DC, both publishers went to extra page count and twenty five cent book cover. That was the handshake. That's what they agreed to do. And <laughs> and so Martin. Goodman did that for exactly one month. And then he dropped his page count 
and he dropped his cover price. And uh-huh. suddenly, he's he's undercutting DC in the marketplace, and he's he's winning market share. And um, this is at a time when Marvel hadn't quite ever passed DC in the sales, and the DC was filling their extra pages by reprinting old material, and so. Here's Marvel's product for a lower cover price, and they get to brag how it's all new. And, and they increase their discount to the distributors. So now the distributors make more money pushing Marvel product. So he, he did a handshake deal with DC, held it for one month, and then undercut them. And guess what happened? Marvel took the majority of the market share for the first time in history. <laughs> that was when Marvel passed DC, is when they started doing this. Now, to, to try to be gracious to Martin Goodman, it is suggested in this excerpt that he didn't necessarily mean to double cross DC, but, <laughs> but you know, they're saying it's possible that they got ready to do that and realized they just didn't have the pages. They didn't have the volume of reprint material that DC had. DC's library went back for decades and they had preserved it all very well. And Marvel just didn't have that backlog and they couldn't fill the pages. So it wasn't sustainable for them and they had to go back to this. Um, now, in DC, like six, seven, eight months later, DC finally did the same thing and dropped down to 20 cents. But by that time, they had lost market share. So I found that story completely fascinating. Yeah, um, that's interesting. And, and it explains why we got this one extra issue and, um, and it didn't last long. Um, but the Avengers in particular totally win with this little quirk, this moment in comic history. It was like one month in 1971 where this happened. It, it was the it was Neil Adams' debut issue of the Avengers, and he had come to Roy Thomas with this pre-conceived uh, idea that he had this vision, no pun intended, <laughs> of of Ant Man shrinking down inside of the Vision and exploring the his his inner workings, exploring his android biology, so to speak, mm-hmm. and he wanted to do that. Well, Roy, he found himself with like 15 extra pages to fill. And he was like, Neil, that sounds great. Knock yourself out. And that's what you get in this issue. And it's a classic sequence that's well regarded. It's got very little. It has nothing to do with the Krees and the Scrolls fighting each other. Mm-mm. But you have, I counted it, 14 pages of Neil Adams drawing Hank Pym as Ant-Man going in through the inside of the vision. And, uh, and it's awesome. I mean, it's truly awesome. It's just mind-blowing sci-fi. And, and if we if we wouldn't have gotten this, at least not in this form or this many pages devoted to it, if it hadn't been for that little quirk with the printing schedule. Well, a couple of things there. One is um, you can see why Neil Adams didn't last that long. You bring him on the book, and the first thing you do is make him draw a 34-page comic. He's not going to be around very long. My gosh. I mean, then he's, as soon as he finishes that 34 pages, he's got to turn around and draw a longer, like you said, an even longer one, not 34, but not seven, 17 or 19 either. It's 20, like 23 or something. So I can see where he, he burned out pretty quickly. And, and the other thing is um, – it's interesting that David Michelini later did uh, a story very similar to this with Ant-Man going inside Iron Man. When Iron Man, in the in a story around 1978-79, Iron Man punches the Hulk and knocks the Hulk out, but it fries his armor because it you took all of his power. And so uh, I guess it was by that point Scott Lang maybe that did it. I can't. I guess it was the Scott Lang Ant-Man that went inside of him and uh, had to fix his armor from the inside in the exact same way that that uh, that Pym does on the vision, and um, the, this is also I got to mention before we get past this. This is also the moment that that gives the cover that you have, where Neil Adams has said 
that he originally wanted it to say when the vision comes into the room at the beginning of this issue, the vision was supposed to say, three cows shot me down. And they changed it. I guess Roy or the editor, Stan or whoever, changed it to just say, help me, please help me. And he falls down. And the whole idea was it was like foreshadowing that it was those cows that had been the, the scrolls had been turned into back in. In fact, the whole genesis of this story, of this whole story, was that Neil Adams asked Roy Thomas, whatever happened to that fourth cow in, the, in, in Fantastic Four number two, right? Where there were four scrolls in that whole Fantastic Four story. And at the end of the story, Reed hypnotizes three of them into being cows. And you're like, well, whatever happened to the fourth one? And, mm-hmm. and so Roy is like, well, let's, let's write it. Let's write what happens to the fourth one. And so later on in the Kree Scroll War, you find out what happened to the fourth scroll that didn't get turned into a cow. So, yeah. but the, and, the, and the other thing about this image is when, when, when Neil came back to do this cover, he, he was able to put Three Cows Shot Me Down on it, but he points out that when you look at that cover, you can't tell if we're seeing through a glass door, if we're seeing the Avengers in the reflection and the visions coming through the door, or whether you're seeing the vision and the reflection, the Avengers are actually standing behind you. So that's pretty cool. That's that's a neat little uh, uh, double illusion there, mm-hmm. um, but you're absolutely right. I mean, the idea. Think about this. This is something else that was kind of mind blowing at the time, and this is classic Roy Thomas, the fan yeah. writer. Um, he ties into Fantastic Four number two. I yeah. mean, that's <laughs> is ten years old. It was one little bitty panel that Jack Kirby drew at the end of the issue, where he probably just didn't have room to draw four cows. Yeah, <laughs> but. Roy Thomas, which, you know, we're all like this. Anybody listening to this podcast is probably like this. They're going, I only see three cows. So what happened to the other one? Exactly. So, and so he, any, for any fan, was there a fan in 1971 that was really staying up late wondering what happened to that fourth cow <laughs> in that 1961 issue of Avengers? I, I mean, a Fantastic Four, I got to know. But he uses it and, and it's, 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 you know, it's ridiculous in an awesome Marvel kind of way. But here comes after. Ant-Man gets vision better, and he's able to tell his story. By the way, Captain America, Iron Man, and Thor say, what do you mean we disbanded the Avengers? No, we didn't. What are you talking about? Yeah. So <laughs> adding to the history there. But Vision tells the story of what happened to him, and he's flying to this farm where Carol Danvers has insisted that she take Marvell to keep him safe. And these cows blast him out of the air. <laughs> and and he, does, he doesn't quite understand that, but, but then they turn into, they kind of turn into, Reed Richards, the thing, and the Human Torch, and they're fighting the Avengers up here on this farm. By the way, uh, Goliath, Quicksilver, and Scarlet Witch, and I, they all got there. Uh, apparently, they took Wanda's credit card and rented a convertible. Yes. And in their full Avengers costume, just drove upstate, took a little road trip. <laughs> it's like when they the, get on the bus in the Corvax story. <laughs> but but keep in mind, they're disbanded because Cap said so at the end of the previous issue. They're, they're just going for a ride in, the, in their uh, convertible, and they go up to this farm. And they fight these cows that turn into members of the Fantastic Four. Except not quite, because you see Ben Grimm's like has stretching powers. They're fighting. It doesn't make much sense. Right. Vision's able to get away, and he's able to come back and tell the real Captain America, Iron Man, and Thor what had happened. Um, so I'm trying to look at my notes here. Um, so in the course of this fight, you know, the Vision is able. When the Vision was blasted out of the sky, he was frozen. All he could do was turn intangible, but he couldn't move. So the these bad guys were able to take Wanda and, and Quicksilver captive, and he just sunk himself a little bit below the surface of the ground to hide. And when they left, 
he was able to get himself back hey, to Avengers Mansion. Am I crazy, or do the quick, does Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch spend like eighty percent of the entire Kree Skull War being held captive? Yeah, you know, I started keeping count. I know Wanda's captured at least twice over the course of this series. There's a lot of capturing and being in custody of other people. Marvel yeah, spends a chunk of the story. Yeah, uh, it's it's kind of funny, but um. They don't get to do a lot. They're just constantly either being held captive or breaking out of being held captive. They never really get to do much. Yeah, but, but so as it turns out, though, while this fighting is going on, Marvell is in the barn with Carol Danvers, and she has convinced him that, hey, you know, you need to build the OmniWave projector so that you can let your people <laughs> know that the scrolls, by the way, they were revealed as scrolls in this issue. You see the cows shoot them down, and before it's over, you realize they were scrolls and they tell you that these are these scrolls these are the three skull scrolls that we saw as cows at the end of fantastic four number two so that i don't for anybody that was aware of the connection that must have blown their mind most people at the time were probably like uh what but um so marvell's building this omniwave projector which is a form of instantaneous communication across the galaxy but in the hands of a non-cree it can be the ultimate weapon and so he's sitting there building it and Carol's over his shoulder, like, hurry up, hurry up. It dawns on him that that's not really Carol Danvers. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so surprise, it's the Super Scroll who's Yay. been in ex- on Earth. And uh, he thought his plan was about to work. And it may explain why Carol ap- appeared to be the one to crash the helicopter on top of the mansion. <laughs> Maybe they don't have helicopters on the Scroll throne world, and he'd never done one before. So no. I don't know. Um, so at the end of the... At the end of the issue, oh, by the way, the barn was secretly a spaceship, so it explodes out of its four walls and takes off for orbit. Of and so you've got London Quicksilver and Captain Marvel are all imprisoned by the scrolls, and they're leaving, and they're gone. So um, I'm looking at my notes here. So no, I'm sorry, that goes into the next issue. So that's where we're left. And so what are we going to do? So 94 mm-hmm. is where they decide they need to. Um, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm having to read and talk at the same time. It's not working out for me. <laughs> the, so this is the Mandroids turn, issue, right? Uh, 94. Is it the Mandroids? Uh, yes, it is. Yeah, so the, whole the Mandroids. Is, so you've got two things going on. You've got. Uh, it turns out that that the Super Scroll wants to use Wanda and Quicksilver to find the Inhuman City of Adalon. Somehow, the fact that they're mutants allow him to use their power to track where the location of this city is. And he gets there, and he bombs it. Now, we've already established that this is, they have a Cree connection, and the scroll tries to bomb the, uh, tries to bomb the inhuman city, and it doesn't work because they're protected by this big dome. Mm-hmm. So the vision, this is weird to me, okay? The vision kind of punks out a little bit. He says he loves Wanda, or we're supposed to believe that. And he's on the ship as it's flying and leaving the Earth, and he's standing there looking at an incapacitated Wanda and Quicksilver, and he makes the choice to leave. He's like, well, I can't do anything here. And he sinks out the bottom of the ship and goes back to the Avengers mansion. Yeah. And, and there they, and there's Wanda Pietro and Marvel are, are, are gone. They're, they're off to, I guess the scroll, uh, galaxy. Um, so in the meantime, back on earth, our favorite politician Craddock is still stirring up public sentiment against the Avengers. All right, let's he, hold on. Hold on. Let's talk about him for just a second. This is a guy that is clearly supposed to be, a riff on uh, McCarthy, you know, and the, the the scapegoating politician, and also kind of a preview of Senator Kelly, I guess, and the mutants one day in the, the X Men to come. So this kind of resonates in, into the past and the future. I thought, and and didn't you kind of know he was going to turn out to be exactly the opposite of what he? I mean, 
I, I read this years ago, and I'm sure it in the back of my mind I remembered, but I feel like the first time I read it, I'm like, okay, this guy's clearly something else, right? He's so over the top that anybody that's this upset about something is usually part of it. You know, it's always they're they're a hidden whatever. So that was the yeah, impression you, I got. You do start to suspect it, but yeah, you're right. It is definitely based on McCarthy, you know, kind of patterned after McCarthy. And he accuses everybody of being an alien or an alien spy. And immediately everybody is against those people. Right. And I think he is very much a, um, a prototype or a, um, kind of a pattern that was set that maybe Claremont would pick up later. Yeah, having the politicians working against the... And Gyrick, the too, you know, later. Absolutely. Um, so he, he uses his position to uh, get S.H.I.E.L.D.'s mandroids to come after the Avengers. So, um, so and they're in the middle of fighting. And from what I can tell, it's not totally clear, but they seem to be on the grounds of Avengers Mansion. And the, the last panel of the issue is literally they're fighting in the background, all the Avengers against the Mandroids, and a manhole cover opens up. It's Triton. And Triton of the, of the Inhumans is climbing out of it while the, while the fighting is going on behind him, and that's how it ends. Yep. Uh, it is important to, to say, though, that uh, aboard Super Scroll's ship, um, he after his plan to use Wanda and Pietro to find Adelon, that didn't work out for him. He then turned around and said, "Okay, Marvel, I'm, uh, I'm, you have to build the Omni Wave projector for me." And he he doesn't want to, so he he has Pietro and Wanda fight a bunch of monsters and say they're going to keep mm. fighting these monsters until they're killed if you don't build this projector for me. So he finally gives in. Which, by the way, there's a panel which reminds me of Trouble with Tribbles. <laughs> yeah, Wanda, yes. some Trouble with Tribbles. These yes. multiplying aliens that are crowding crowding them out of the panel. I thought that was pretty funny, but um, he well, finally also, agrees. So, well, uh, so can I also can I also mention the cover of ninety? Are we are we, we ninety five? Yeah, it all kind of runs together. I'm at the very end of ninety four, about going to ninety five. Okay, well, I just say that the cover of ninety five is the cover that that Chris Kohler and I chose for the um, inspiration for Sentinels Volume Eight, the lo- yes. the Dark Crusade. So I just always whenever I see this issue, I immediately go, "Hey, that's the cover of the Sentinels book." <laughs> so we, that's always cool. Funny. That's what I think of too. When I saw ninety five, I was like, "Oh, there's Van's book." Yeah, uh, but it's also. It, it, I'm glad you stopped me on the cover to ninety five because there is something else about it. It is the final appearance of the original Avengers logo. Yes, that's correct. This is that they've had, I guess, since issue number one. It's lasted for ninety five issues, and that's it. We're going to see a totally different one in, in issue ninety six. So this is the farewell of the original logo. I think that's worth noting. Yes. So. Uh, so, but 95, by the way, the best thing about 95 is the splash page. It's this gorgeous shot of, of <laughs> Triton climbing up and getting on his, I guess, climbing out of the manhole cover or the dock, no, here, I guess. I should. This is one hour ago earlier, and he's getting out of the water. Then he's going to go into the manhole. But it's, what, a, what a drawing. Yeah. I mean, Neil Adams, if you, if you need to be convinced of Neil Adams, just look <laughs> at that page and maybe the sequence with Hank Pym going through with the inside of Vision. It's just, it blows me away. I just, um, but anyway, we get the backstory of what happened of why Triton showed up at Avengers Mansion. And basically, Mad Max or Mad Maximus has taken over, <laughs> surprise, has taken over the rulership of the Inhumans. And really Black does. Bolt is exiled or he's lost or he's lost his memory and that nobody knows where he is. And they're like, well, we got to go help you with that. And Vision's like, hold up, Wanda and Quicksilver. <laughs> are not on Earth anymore. They've been captured by the Skrulls, and who knows where they're going, and why are we stopping? 
and going to help the Inhumans. What does that got to do? Yeah. Well, basically, they said, okay, you're right. Let's split up. So Vision, Iron Man, and Thor say they're going to go to outer space and try to track this down. And Captain America, who is it? Uh, Clint and uh, Rick are going to are going to go try to help the Inhumans. Well, as it happens, <laughs> Vision, Iron Man, and Thor. So the uh, so Cap's team they leave right away. They leave Vision's team to still have to fight the Mandroids. Well. <laughs> So Cap is off, like, searching the streets of San Francisco for where Black Bolt may be. And uh, and Vision and Iron Man and Thor are still fighting the Mandroids. Well, they fight the Mandroids. They win. And I don't know why. Vision changes his mind and says, you know what? You're right. I think we need to go help the Inhumans, too. That couldn't make sense out of all this where he keeps trying to... I'm like, is, makes- he, tr- is he trying to, like, say... No, I really care about Wanda. And then he's like, oh, no, I can't let that influence my decision. So, no, 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 I don't have to. And he's like, well, you know, I really want to. And I feel like he just can't, he can't decide, you know what I mean? What's, what's so, the by the way, so while, while Cap and Clint and Rick are off doing things the old fashioned way, Thor says, well, we're going to, Thor opens up a portal with Mjolnir and they immediately arrive at Adelon and they get there ahead of Captain America's team. <laughs> it's like, you know, you could have opened that for Cap earlier, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's cool. So they get there and they're trying to knock down this dome that has formed around the city as a result of the scrolls attack. And they can't get past it until Black Bolt, who's now with Cap, they, have, they found him, they bring him back. Uh, and by the way, um, oh, I'll get that second. So Black Bolt speaks and he mm. shatters the dome. Uh, somehow it doesn't affect the hearing of the characters standing around him, but it destroys the dome. And there's a war army sitting there waiting for him and Let's attack him in the name of Mad Max. There's a big fight. Um, well, uh, spoiler alert, you know, good guys win. And uh, Mad Max immediately, immediately, I call him Mad Max. I know, I Mad, like that. I'm, I'm enjoying you calling him Mad Max. Go on with it. Go ahead. Maximus, Maximus the Mad, whatever. He's Mad Max. Uh, <laughs> he immediately imagine- goes catatonic again. Just like, oh, no, I'm not going to win. Blip, he's catatonic, and he's no good. Uh, I guess he's just insane that way. But, yep. um, but uh, we do get the... Um, in, in the in the form of an inner monologue of thought balloons from Black Bolt, we come to understand that uh, Maximus had an agreement with the Kree. He had an agreement with Ronan, the accuser. And it was such that he was loyal to Ronan. And whenever the day came that Ronan would be in control of the Kree galaxy, then Mad Max <laughs> would um, activate. It's kind of like a sleeper cell and would be a force for the Kree on Earth. And... I guess the scrolls knew that and they tried to attack them. But anyway, that's how it ties in. This is kind of a one issue detour. I guess Neil Adams just wanted to draw the inhumans, but it does yeah. tie in to the Cree. You know, we did get sure. the info in issue 90 where we heard about the Cree connection to the inhumans. So it ties in, I guess mm-hmm. they did some foreshadowing, but it's still, it's not our Cree scroll outer space galactic war that we want to see on these pages. No, <laughs> it's more about, you know, the inhumans. But um, anyway, um, with the merest whisper that comes across as a resounding boom across all the land, Black Bolt's able to talk to the people and it all gets settled. And so Adelon's fine now. Um, But in the middle of the fight, a Kree warrior, for some weird reason, (laughs) snaps up Rick Jones and abducts him, takes him on a Kree spaceship and takes off. So just like earlier, we saw Rick have this weird vision of Marvel in trouble at the farm and he bolts out of the of the courthouse. Here is again something involving Rick that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. We don't know why it happens. This Cree guy captures him and takes off. 
So uh, at this point, it's the end of the issue. Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver are still in outer space, are still uh, the, you know, in custody of the scrolls while Marvell is working on the Omni Projector. And, and now Rick Jones uh, is in the custody of the Kree. And it's time for the Avengers to rally together and storm the castle. And that's where you get, it ends on that image that you were talking about from your cover of Captain America, the Star Wars image of Captain America raising his shield and it looks pretty yes. cool. Uh, that's like, okay, so this, the Kree Scroll War is nine issues long. We have now completed seven of those issues. We have been on Earth the whole time. And finally, the Avengers are like, it's on now. We're going, we're going, we're going to go get them. <laughs> finally. So, you know, we're thinking, all right, now we're going to get to see some action. Uh, it's pretty cool. And, and we, so the Andromeda Swarm, great title. And we do yeah. get that new logo and everything. And it's still that, that we're talking about 96, the cover with the vision beating the dude down and everything. And you notice also they put up at the top Thor, Captain America, Iron Man. I mean, you still got the vision as the little clever corner box representative of the team all the way well into like the 200s, just about, or almost the 200s. But, um, but they are emphasizing that the three members of the Avengers that have their own books at this point, they are a part of this team. Because, I, I, I mean... There is a tendency every now and then the, the Avengers would focus on like the supporting characters that, that really in the Avengers that didn't have their own books like the Vision, the Scarlet Witch, the Wasp, and all them. But I mean, you know, you want to see the big the big names too, don't you? So it's, that, I, sure. I, I thought that's good to put that up there. Instead of Earth's Mightiest Heroes, they're at that point they're promoting the the three biggest characters, I guess. Yeah. So you know, so we're we're into ninety six. And they hop up into orbit, and they find a. Sh- there's there's Nick Fury hanging out in orbit on a shield. Uh, is this is this Star Corps from um, from Avengers one sixty seven when they when they spot the Guardians of the Galaxy ship? Remember, it looks I like do- it. They don't call it that at any point, but it looks like the Star Corps station that that Fury called them on at the beginning of uh, of the Korvac saga. Well, let's just say that it is because it sure because looks I think like- that would. I don't think they name it here. So sure. Why not? Yeah. Um, but they were able to get a, a intergalactic spaceship from shield. Nick's like, no problem. You know, Craddock might not like it, but who cares? And they, and with the help of that ship and Thor's hammer, they immediately make their way to the scroll galaxy and are in the middle, or at least facing a gigantic scroll armada. And we get a, we get one full splash page of a whole bunch of ships. And finally, the, the promise of the payoff of the premise of this story appears to be imminent. There's a whole fleet of spaceships. Yeah. Um, so, but what they do is they were able to like fool their radar, so to speak, and make the scrolls think they have a whole fleet of their own. And um, they send out one ship to talk. They realize, they, they realize fairly quickly that it's, it's a ruse, but the Avengers are successful in making it a one-on-one confrontation initially. So they, they rip open the side of the scroll ship and they get their way in. And, and Clint Barton as Goliath stays on the ship outside. Uh, stays on their own ship. At this point, he's lost his growth powers. Now, Clint Barton has been Goliath since issue 63, which was, uh, I looked it up, it was the April of 69 cover dated issue. So it's been about three years he's been Goliath. I think the thinking at the time was, you got to have a giant sized character. Yeah. Since Hank Pym is is the yellow jacket now we got to have somebody's got to be goliath i was just wondering is it that roy thomas just didn't want to write a guy with arrows that could be it i i, I think and maybe it was just roy thomas's opinion that you had to have a giant-sized guy i don't yeah. know yeah yeah but 
but he's he's run out of his serum, <laughs> the gross serum. Yeah. And he's 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 still in outer space in his costume, but all he can all he's about good for is to drive the ship. He's he knows he's not gonna be much good in the battle. So um so they make their way onto the ship and there's a um there's a, a big fight. You see, oh, the, I know what it is. That they're on that ship, and the emperor, the scroll emperor, shows up on a giant view screen from wherever he is. And on this view screen, the Avengers see that Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver are captured, and Captain Marvel appears to be helping the scrolls. Well, this is when Vision loses it because you know this 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 famous cover scene of him just pounding away on this dude. Yeah, it's it's because he loves Wanda. That, that's that's, right. where, that's where the emotions coming from. I don't know why I never made this connection that the stuff with Wanda started so early, but he's like, you better not have hurt Wanda. You better tell me where she is right now and starts loses control and starts wailing on this guy. Um, meanwhile, so he, they, they beat him up or whatever, but, um, but not before the scrolls launch a bunch of nuclear warheads toward earth on board a, a ship. And so, and that's what Clint gets to do. Clint's still outside and they're like, Hey, you gotta stop that ship. Even if it costs you your life, you got to stop it. Clint's like, cool. I'm on it. He takes off. And over the course of this issue and next, we see him track it down. He gets there. He gets on board. He's facing off against them. And that never gets resolved in these issues. We have to keep reading past issue 97 to see what happens. But I can tell you that this is the end of him being Goliath. When this gets resolved in issue 98 and 99, he's Hawkeye again. Mm. So, um, but I do think it's classic Clint Barton that this, this is, this speaks to the nature of his character. He's got no weapons. He's got no powers. He's in another galaxy yeah. facing off against a bunch of alien, scary looking alien warriors. And he's like, I got to stop these guys. And he's like, he's like, I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I'm going to do it. I mean, he's not scared of anything. I, I, that to me, that's pure Clint Martin, even if he doesn't have a bow and arrow in his hand. So I, I thought that part was cool. Absolutely. Yes. But um, let's see where we are. So, um, so, Rick is brought Rick is still a prisoner of, you know, that, that Cree, that random Cree soldier had picked up Rick and brought him yeah. and taken him into custody. He brings him in front of Ronan, the accuser, and shows some spunk. <laughs> and Ronan's like, you know what? I don't see much of that around here. It's my will that you get to live because mm-hmm. you got spunk, kid. And then he says something kind of creepy. He says, I'm going to make you my body slave. Yeah. I, I don't know how that's different from a slave. I don't think I. I want to know. <laughs> kind of like the kind of like the man servant, like the body the body uh, the body man for the president. In other words, you basically you bring me my goblet of wine and you fan me and you uh, yeah you're kind of like my my uh, my immediate assistant and bodyguard. Although the Rick Jones being a bodyguard of Ronan is kind of laughable, but but yeah, he basically I love the idea that Ronan's like you know the crease suck. Why don't you hang around? <laughs> you're funny. You're a funny guy. Let's hang out with you. But it's all part of the plan. See, it's all coming together now. So it, it appears one one of Rick's superpowers is is he has the ability to be anybody's sidekick. Yes, uh, that's right. Hulk, Captain America, Marvel, it's all cool. Well, he immediately somehow this works on Ronan, and Ronan yes. wants to make Rick sidekick. He's like, "Come with me, chum," and he sets <laughs> out about, and he's like, "You see this entire fleet of ships." taking off right now yep they're all going to earth look how awesome the Kree are this is my army isn't this cool and he's like we're either going to destroy the earth or we're going to occupy it and so you know rick says why are you going to do that well this is where we get the explanation that it's in a strategic position in the middle of both galaxies so it becomes important that you've got to either control that or you've got to destroy it and deny your opponent from controlling it Mm -hmm. and so rick is thinking to himself oh okay now i get it 
And then he's like, look over there. <laughs> and then turns around and runs the other way, trying to escape. And that doesn't work. Ronan captures him. But this is what Ronan does in all his wisdom. Rick, he locks Rick up in the same room where he has imprisoned the Supreme Intelligence. And so now you've got the Supreme Intelligence yeah. and Rick together talking to each other yes. while they're both in prison. Um, and this is where we start to get some of the questions answered about what's been happening over the course of this story. The Supreme Intelligence explains to Rick that uh, he manipulated events to make this moment happen, to get them together in this room. Like, it was the Supreme Intelligence who gave Rick that vision of Marvell in trouble at the farm to mm -hmm. make him bolt out of the courthouse. It was the Supreme Intelligence influence that caused that random Kree soldier to grab Rick and take him into custody. Because later, when Ronan asked that soldier, why'd you do it? He said, I don't know. I just did it. Mm -hmm. And so... This is, where I can, this is where I can start believing that Roy has actually thought ahead a little bit. You know, those first yeah. three or four issues, I don't think he had any idea where he was going. But he had to have been starting to at least loosely plot things going through this issue, to the next issue, right, at this point. Yeah, and, and now, you know, as I'm talking, I'm not so sure this is a kree scroll war or if it's more of a, um, a coup d'etat or civil war within the Kree Empire. Because this is yeah. Ronan versus intelligence. That's what this is. Yeah. This is intelligence maneuvering to get the control of the galaxy back from Ronan the accuser. Um, yeah, the whole thing. Meanwhile, somewhere, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, I said, yeah, the whole thing is. Yeah. But meanwhile, you know, Marvel's still back trying to build this Omni projector for the scrolls, and it turns out that at the moment he's building, he decides on the, on the sly he's going to try to use it to communicate with Rick. And I'm not sure, uh, Marvel seems to be under the impression that that his attempt to do that is what caused Rick to then be sucked back into the negative zone. However, you read it another way, and it seems like the Supreme Intelligence just did it on purpose. Man, I, th I think it is explained that Supreme Intelligence influenced Marvell to do this. But regardless, the end result is Rick Jones, after being told to his face by the Supreme Intelligence that he was brought to that room for a reason, he's immediately you know, sent to the negative zone, and he's back in the negative zone all over again. And that's how issue 96 ends. So um, the uh, so here we go. Yeah. It's like, okay, we still haven't had our big war, right? <laughs> so surely, surely issue 97, which says on the cover, this is it. The fearful finale of the... It wasn't even, as you noted, it wasn't ever labeled the, the Kree-Skrull War, as we call it now. The one time they actually use anything like that phraseology on the cover of 97, it says the, the fearful finale of the Skrull versus Kree War. So it's not even called this, and it's not even the right order. And it says, of course, Rick Jones conquers the universe, and the cover is about as um, uninspiring as you could ever get in a, this looks like a one shot where Rick Jones is th is bringing back the invaders. It's not the, 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 you, if you looked at this cover and it didn't say this is it, the fearful finale of the Scroll vs. Kree War, you would have no idea that this issue had anything to do with. I mean, yeah. you know, you had those great covers earlier, the the Andromeda Swarm and all that, and then you get this, you get a picture of a of a of a primitive human torch throwing a fireball and, and it's just like, and it lo looks like the owl guy from the watchmen. And yeah. I mean, I, 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 I mean, look, I get where Roy is going with this. What Roy was trying to say, I think is, and, and I like this a lot. I think this has always been kind of a through plot line in the Marvel universe, in the comics itself, that, that through plot is 
There are alien races, there are cosmic beings all in the Marvel Universe, and they are all way more powerful than humans are now. But someday, ultimately, Earth and humans will rise up and become the most powerful dominant beings in the universe. That's kind of always been in the background of a lot of the cosmic Marvel stuff going all the way back to the 60s. And so what, what, you know, what Roy Thomas is saying here is that when push comes to shove, you know, the Kree have reached the end of their evolution. They're an evolutionary dead end. And, and, the, and the supreme intelligence knows that humans are the ones with all the potential. And so he just kind of says, well, then, therefore, I can end the whole story with Rick tapping into that potential and, and using that to bring down, to bring things to a close. The, the, the thing I have with it is, if you're going to let Rick use his, his share of humanity's untapped great cosmic potential of the future, why would you manifest it as he brings back the invaders or something? There's like, I could literally let, write down a thousand things off the top of my head that I think would be cooler than what Rick actually does. I just, this is, this to me is where it ultimately fails is that I totally get where he's going with this. I get that Rick Jones, that a, that a, that the one Avenger that's just a normal human with no skills, no powers, nothing except that magical sidekick ability that you mentioned, I think, I think is valid. He's going to be the one to end it. That works. That makes sense. That totally clicks. But the way that he does it <laughs> is just disappointing to me, you know? Well, let me, there's something else. There's another detail about that makes it even more disappointing, or at least more of an odd choice. Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, let me say this. It's not odd at all when you consider the writer, right? Roy Thomas loves his Golden Age heroes. Yeah. And um, this, I mean, of course, he would go on to write The Invaders, right? So he, I just got a feeling that he was just, he was giddy over the opportunity or the idea to be able to draw these Golden Age heroes and bring them into this story. But here's what's odd. If you read it, it's read as if Captain America and maybe Namor are real, are like actual people, but the other characters are comic book characters that that Rick read stories about when he was a kid. It's as if they were not people in Marvel Universe continuity at all. They were just characters. Like they he's not drawing on historical figures here. He's drawing on imaginary fictional characters from his mind in this moment. Yeah. At the peak of human power. Um, huh. Now, I think that's contradictory. I mean, certainly in the years since, these characters, we're talking about Angel and the Golden Age Vision and the Patriot and the Finn, uh, the Blazing Skull. If they had not already been established as uh, incontinuity actual people from the Golden Age, they have certainly been established that way by now. These were all quote unquote real people. Um, but the way this story reads, most of these were just fictional characters from comic books that Rick <laughs> read and enjoyed, which is just, it is, it's odd. It's very strange, but, um, that's what happens. You know, he, he fights, he's, he's in the negative zone and faces, um, Annihilus again and has, and somehow comes up with a mind blast to destroy him. Well, that's new how that happened. <laughs> and he comes back and SI said, I have in my notes, SI Supreme intelligence says, you know, that's um, that that's that's what all humans can do. You know, that's the ultimate end game, you know, evolutionary state of human potential. And so he sends out another mega blast across multiple galaxies and wherever there are scroll or Cree, they're all frozen in their tracks. So this is that sudden record scratch ending to this whole nine issue epic is mm -hmm. like with with one convenient superpower from Rick Jones. Everything ends just immediately. Ain't stop. Done. 
we're finished. Yeah. yeah. And we, we never really get the intergalactic armadas fighting each other. Um, but of course, cut back to our favorite politician, Craddock, on Earth. And that fourth <laughs> scroll, that fourth cow that Jack Kirby f- didn't have room to draw, <laughs> that was the scroll that escaped. And it's Craddock, and he's the, he's the fourth scroll. So the payoff to this whole series here is that we know what happened now to that fourth scroll. And, uh, and the real Craddock comes out of hiding and says, no, no, the Avengers are fine. They're not alien spies. It's all good. And we have a nice, uh, tidy wrap-up to the whole thing, with the exception that Goliath is still out there in outer space without any powers. And we have to find out next what happens to him. Well, <laughs> there it is. Um, the, uh, I, I want to say this, though. It's worth mentioning for... Uh, the, I think you and I both um, have, have kind of quit reading new comic books these days. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but I think we're both familiar with Hulkling, the character from The Young Avengers. He's, uh, he's half Kree and half Skrull, mm-hmm. and he is the son of Captain Marvel and Princess Anel, the, 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 the Skrullian oh, yeah. Anel. And she is in this story. We That's see her. Right. That's right. And... Um, you know, and she has a couple of thought balloons like, hey, you know, maybe that Marvel guy's not so bad. And then at the end, there's a panel where Marvel's reflecting on her, going, I wish she could have been something more. What we have found out now in retcon continuity about Hulkling is that somehow they did find time to get together and know each other a little bit. They should. And they, they conceived uh, Hulkling. And, um, and that's going to that's gonna tie into the Empire story they're doing this year in 2020. Uh, my understanding is that Hulkling is basically going to unite the two galaxies and be the ruler. And uh, I don't know if he's going to be a good guy or a bad guy, but um, that's cool. But this is where his parents met and got together. Is this is where he was conceived? Was during this time when Marvel was held captive by the Skrulls. So he's I don't know. He's half brother to Genus uh, and Phyla. Yes. Uh, so um, it's worth noting for you know anybody who still <laughs> is still reading Marvel uh, books out there and is looking forward to Empire, um, read the Kree Scroll War to kind of try to figure out when his parents got together because it seems like he's building the Omni Wave projector the whole time. I don't know how he had time to conceive of Hulkling, but <laughs> no. apparently, so I don't know. But uh, so a couple things: the uh, this strange power that Rick gets to save the universe um, immediately is taken away from him. And he falls, he falls unconscious. So a couple things happen. Uh, number one, the only way to save him, guess how? Marvel must merge bodies with him, and they yeah. are this, the whole status quo of taking turns in the negative zone and banging their wrists together. Uh, that's all. That status quo is restored. So by the end of the story, they're still back in that in in that kind of dynamic. So that that toy is put back in its box at the end of this story. Um, yeah, I've been and, reading the old Captain Marvels for a while now. I've got them all on Comixology, the ones that I didn't have the issues of already, and some of them I do. And that goes on for a very long time. I can't remember when it finally does stop. But, but it's um, the, I mean, this goes on for a while. Rick stayed in the. Rick was always in Marv's book. He just sometimes he was swapping back and forth with him, and sometimes he was just a supporting character, like in all that later storyline with um, that 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 Moench and. Um, Pat Broderick did, which I love the whole where he gets together with um, where Marvel gets together with um, what's her name the, the the Titan his his wife. Um, in that Rick is in it all through, but he's he's just a supporting character. I got you. Well, this this power of his, this superpower that saved the world here, um, it's said that you know this will be something that can be used again in the distant future. 
Well, that's 1972 when that issue came out, right? Fast forward to what, 1998, 99? Yeah, I knew where you were going. <laughs> Forever, right? Written by Kurt Busick. Avengers um, Forever. Yeah, he brings that back. So it, Kurt gives it a name. So it's called the Destiny Power. And and Avengers Forever, that deserves its own podcast episode. Oh, we'll do it. Day. Uh, but, um, but we do see that comeback. Like Busick reached back to the Kree Scroll War um, some, you know, 20 plus, 25 plus years earlier and, and, and brought that back into play that, and gave it a name. So Rick, Rick Jones had once again, the destiny power. Um, so I, I did a quick little search on Marvel database, or maybe it was comic book database, uh, for destiny power to see like how many times has this been used? Hmm. So it was used in pre-scroll war and it was used in Avengers forever. Apparently it was used again and somebody else other than Rick Jones possessed it. And it was issue 101 of the Avengers, like very soon after these issues that we are going yeah. over today. Um, still written by Roy Thomas. Um, I, I would need to go look at that issue again, but uh, it has to be a retcon. I don't think he had this world-ending same power that he, Roy had just used, you know, in the Kree Scroll War. I don't think he did it on purpose, but somehow, somewhere along the way, that's been retconned to also be an example of the destiny power in use. So. I need to go read 101 and see see if that holds up or not. Well, that's a 101 is it Harlan Ellison Five Dooms to Save Tomorrow with is that I think that's Ultimo. It looks like Ultimo. Or not Ultimo, but what what's the golden glowing guy that was like Scarlet Witch's brother or whatever, you know, allegedly the the son of the Wizard and Miss America or whoever from Avengers oh. Annual number 6. That's who's on the uh, cover. And it says Harlan Ellison Strikes Back Five Dooms to Save Tomorrow. All right, let me take a look at it. I'll call it up right here. Um, so this I is a Harlan Edison uh, Ellison I, story credit. Well, it's what it says on the cover. I can't think of that. I thought they was Ultimo is the big blue guy that fights Iron Man. Um, I can't think of his name, but the the radioactive dude that was the child of the Wizard and Miss America appeared in Avengers Annual number six. Um, I can't think of his name. I bet if I Google Avengers Annual six, it'll tell me. Well, my Google radio. search showed that there was a character named Leonard Tippett who received the destiny power. Oh, okay. So I'd have to read the issue. Oh, and That's much a like... Nuclo. Nuclo is who I was thinking of. Okay. Well, so much like the Supreme Intelligence unlocked this power in Rick Jones, in this story, the Watcher unlocks it in um, in this guy named Leonard Tippett. That's totally so, a Harlan Ellison. That's totally a yeah. Harlan Ellison thing. It's got to be, yeah. Uh, Okay, well, somebody at some point, and maybe it was just in the last couple of years, for all I know, retroactively decided that was also an example of the destiny power. So just, it's, uh, I don't know, just something weird. It's like, oh, it's used again so soon. You know, in 101, that's still 1972, and it was still Roy Thomas. But um, anyway, there you go. That's yeah, Har- Harlan, Ellis, Harlan Ellison and Roy Thomas, yeah. Roy, Rich Buckler drew it, and it was a one-shot, I think, and it, yeah, Leonard Tippett. Yeah, so okay. the, whatever the Watcher unlocks in Leonard Tippett to give him powers, someone has decided that was also an example of the destiny power that oh, Rick okay. Jones uses uh, that makes sense. with both Roy Thomas and Kurt Busiek. So anyway, um, you know, I will, again, I'll repeat, my reaction to this story was I, I confess to being a little bit underwhelmed for what I guess was one of your reasons, which is that we never really got the cool outer space large-scale war that I wanted to see. <laughs> I was promised an interstellar war, an intergalactic war. I didn't really get much of one. Um, it's very much an Earthbound perspective. We get a, they, they do leave Earth toward the end there, but 
it never really blows up into a big intergalactic war. No. Um, that said, you know, if you put that aside and know you're not going to get that and read these issues, certainly within the context of its time, mm-hmm. um, there's a lot here. I mean, there's a, there's a, it's, it's held up uh, on a pedestal for, for a lot of very good reasons. Um, just the nature of the storytelling, it changed the way Marvel it uh, could tell stories. Mm-hmm. And it was a precursor to company-wide crossovers. It certainly drew on more than just the Avengers sandbox to tell their whole story. Yeah, He's tying into continuity, whether it's Captain Marvel series or Fantastic Four number two, or the Inhumans. You have to know the events of these other books in order for this these parts to make sense. Um, and then on top of that, you've got Neil Adams. I mean, yeah. I love... I love John Buscema. John Buscema, inked by Tom Palmer, you're talking my language. I mean, <laughs> I I grew up on the, their run with Roger Stern in the 80s. So when I see their pages in the Kree Scroll War, it look in, in my mind, even though the, the 80s were more than 30 years ago now, in my mind, that looks like a modern comic. And to go from these early issues with Sal Buscema to John Buscema and Tom Palmer, that's already a quantum leap for me. Like. We've we've gone from the early Stan Lee days to a modern comic, from from my perspective. But but Neil Adams, Neil Adams makes John Buscema pale by comparison, and I I can't get enough of looking at his artwork in these in these issues. I mean, I don't think you can call I don't think you can really name him the best Avengers artist ever, just based on the fact that he wrote he drew only four issues. But those four issues are so astounding. It's it's worth if someone's listening to this and they don't know what Neil Adams art looks like, they need to go track this stuff down. It's, I can't say enough good things about it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree with you that it, it, it all is, it's all a matter of, of context that this, this doesn't work today, but at the time, yeah, it had to have been a huge thing and, and a, and a shocking thing. Cause I remember how I felt as the Corvax saga was playing out in the Avengers a few years later and, in, the, in much the same way, where it's mixed in with other plots and you don't know what's going on. In fact, for it, they actually left for a couple of issues and came back, you know. And So, yeah, I mean, this is a... But it is a milestone in Marvel history, and it's one that, that certainly we had to look at. And um, when we reviewed, when all of us, whoever all reviewed uh, the Captain Marvel movie, I mean, this informs a lot of what was in that movie, even, you know, the, the, the with the Kree and the scrolls and everything. Well, I think just that, just, you know, putting that in our heads... The Kree versus the Scroll. I mean, just that basic concept uh, is already one of the legacies of this story. So, yeah, and so it resonates in different ways. Like it's it's it informed episodes of the Earth's Mightiest Heroes uh, cartoon, yeah. Uh, yeah, and it's informed the plot of the Captain Marvel movie. And I'm assuming we're going to see more of it in the MCU going forward. So, yeah, it it, it makes it makes me wish that Marvel had been in the Avengers more. And I, I, I'm glad that. Carol Danvers ends up, Ms. Marvel ends up an Avenger for sure through a fair chunk of their run. But, but I wish that uh, I just feel like Marvel never knew what to do with Marvel, and um, they finally just decided to kill him off because they didn't know what to do with him. And I think he would have been an awesome. I think he would have worked really well on the Avengers in the same way that the Scarlet Witch, the Vision, Henry Pym do. You know, as like a character that doesn't necessarily carry his own successfully carry his own series. But would be a great addition to the team. I could just see him, you know, hanging around the mansion or going on patrol in space while they're, you know, they're worrying about earthbound situations. I mean, there's so much they could have done with him, and um, he could have even been like a love interest uh, 
competition with Jan or Wanda or Carol or somebody, you know, and that would have been kind of interesting. Or She-Hulk, you know, that would have been interesting. But uh, they just didn't know what to do with him, and they didn't they didn't ask me, so I could have fixed it all. <laughs> I, th- I think, you know, he is recognized as an honorary Avenger, and I guess it's just on the strength of, of this story right here. Yeah, um, I don't know what else he does, really, with him. I don't Not either. Much. I, at, uh, Thanos makes a cameo appearance in issue 125. But to be honest with you, I'd have to go look at it again to see if Marvel's even in that. He might not be. I guess Avengers uh, Annual Seven is about the only other time. Yeah, and and you know one of the all-time great stories. But even that is only half of a story. You got to read Marvel Two and One to get the rest of it. And 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 again, Marvel's not really super important in it. I mean, his he's not. It's Warlock that's that that drives that story, not Marvel. So. Yeah, and the Avengers show up at his funeral. You know, there's yeah. they have a part. So that's but, about yeah. it. So anyway, so so what do you give me? You get ultimately you giving it a thumbs down? Oh no, I I, I guess on an A B C D F. I mean, I, I, in terms of a story I want to read now, I give it a D. But in terms of its historic role, I give it I guess like a B plus. Yeah, there's a lot about it I like, but I I I, I do admit that I was a little bit underwhelmed by it this time around, just because yeah. I, I wanted more large scale action that we didn't get. I don't think I'm ever going to read it again. Twice is enough. <laughs> I'm good. You're good now. On, onward and upward. I guess we're going to do the uh, the other one in this, the the counterpart, right, which is the Operation Galactic Storm, so which just really real dates quick, it, by the way. <laughs> Operation Galactic Storm was, was a story told, I believe, in 1992, so 20 years after this one. And it is not the Kree Scroll War. It's the Kree Shire War. However... Uh, there is a lot of, uh, I think there's a lot of parallels or at least references and callbacks to the Kree Scroll War. So the, there's, it's kind of a, it shares kind of a thematic uh, kinship there. And um, I think you are, in terms of at least uh, large scale action, you, I know at least uh, checking that box, you're going to be more satisfied with that. Yeah. So um, I would say don't be too discouraged. I want you to read it and, uh, and we'll, we'll discuss it next time. Hopefully it won't be another 12 months before we're back on. Yeah, I hope not. <laughs> All right. Well, David, thank you so much for coming on board. This was a lot of fun going back and exploring a great, uh, a, a great moment in Avengers history for sure. So thanks a bunch. Hey, no problem. I loved it. This has been a White Rocket Entertainment Production.